Welcome back. Back to the Lars Resort. It is Tuesday. Well, I'm doing this in the wrong order now. I usually, I always say it's, it's, it's a podcast. Do you forget that this is a podcast with me, Lars Evertson? Do I need to? I probably don't need to remind you. I'm guessing if you click this, there's a good chance you know that the Lars Resort is a podcast with me, Lars Evertson. It is brought to you by Betson. It is now Tuesday, the 2nd of May. Took a little day off yesterday, pretty much, on the 1st of May. It's the International Workers' Day, after all. Uh, being a good Norwegian, a good sort of... Not, not a good socialist, I'd say. Good social democrat. That's how we roll in, in Scandinavia. Took a day off. Uh, but but now we're, we're back in business. It's Tuesday. And uh, I've watched quite I've watched, I've watched quite a bit of football uh, over the weekend and over last week. So there's quite a few things to, that I want to touch upon. But firstly, the last two games I've seen from the Premier League were maybe not good in terms of absolute quality, but they were a lot of fun. So I'm gradually coming around to, like, if you're neutral, bad can be good. You know, teams that are kind of dysfunctional and not, you know, it's, it's always nice to see when you see two very finely tuned machines where everyone's working brilliantly in unison the tactics are good teams keep possession well the build up play is so sophisticated like all this stuff is great also sometimes fun to watch two teams that are kind of dysfunctional nonsensical teams that just have quite a few good players just have at each other i've, I've seen a bit of that in the last two games and I, I guess we kick off with leicester city versus leeds then Actually, we don't. We kick off with Leicester City versus Everton, which was very similar to Leicester City versus Leeds last week. But but it was it, the game uh, last night. It, it felt like a throwback to a different era of the Premier League. You just had both teams just attacking. Organization was pretty bad. Both teams are, are, are a mess defensively. Neither team have a particularly good sort of idea of how to keep possession and sort of patient build up. Seems like a thing we're not really doing. Just kind of get the ball forward early. I mean, ideally hit the striker early, you know. First, second, third ball after you gain possession, uh, uh, direct up to the striker. Why not? Let's let's get moving. And um, it, 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 it made for a very, very entertaining spectacle with a lot of chances down either end. And, and I'll be honest, I'll be a bit sad if either one of these teams get relegated. I, I, I would miss them though it is distinctly possible that one of them goes at the end of the season. I think you saw the strengths and the shortcomings of both of these two teams. I think they were very, very evident in the game last night uh, because I was especially keen to watch Everton because, you know, when Sean Dyche came in, I, I definitely thought, well, there, you'll be fine now. You'll, you'll be absolutely fine. Sean Dyche is going to come in. He's going to do the Sean Dyche thing. There's enough, like, hard grafting like hard-working guys in there that he can turn it into a, a combative aggressive sort of mean and angry Sean Dyche team that no one's going to enjoy playing against and of course then they beat Arsenal in the first game and you thought yeah well they're, they're gonna get diced you know it's all gonna be fine but then actually recently they've been dropping some points in, in unexpected places and I haven't really been able to watch a full 90 minutes of Everton for a little while. So I haven't been able to form like a very strong opinion on on what's gone wrong uh, for them. So I was really intrigued today, to well, I say yesterday, to, to sit down and just have a have a look at Everton and see, see what's up. And, and certainly against Leicester, they were very aggressive, uh, very combative. They got, uh, got into good positions uh, quite a lot. And they had, I mean, they had 23 shots in this game. 
but they just they have a real problem converting their chances. Uh, it, it's not good that we're this far into the season and Everton's top scorer is, is Dwight McNeil with five goals. Like that, that's not a good place for them to be. Calvert Lewin's only he's had his injuries, but he's also got two goals and twelve, which is less than what you're hoping for. And and their backup striker to to Calvert Lewin is is Neil Mope, I guess, who's got one in eleven. Uh, so they they're just converting chances is and remains a huge huge problem for this Everton team, and we saw examples of that in this game. Whereas with Leicester, it, it, it's kind of not quite the opposite, but I mean they look so much more dangerous when they attack. But their defense is just a mess. They allow so many chances uh, against pretty much everyone. And, uh, and and Leicester, they have now scored as many goals as Aston Villa. Let me let me just leave that there. They've scored the same number of goals as Aston Villa, who are seventh. Leicester have, uh, but they also concede a bunch of goals, and you you never feel like you can trust them in any kind of way. And there's there's you know always the risk of like goofy nonsense breaking out in the middle of their defense, and and so there they are where they are in the table. And, and and this is kind of how this game went. There was a lot of effort from Everton, but not a lot of cutting edge. There was quite you know some cutting edge from Leicester when they went forward, but but nonsense at the back. So very entertaining to watch. You still fear for both of these teams. In, in this really exciting relegation battle we have on our hands where where the number of teams involved has been whittled down like we're no longer in the case i think we can say bournemouth wolves and probably also west ham are, are going to be fine but but if from that cluster of leicester leeds nottingham forest and everton like two are two are going and two are staying I have no idea like that is super open really really exciting very well set and if uh, if the game last night is anything to go by, at least we'll get quite a lot of entertainment uh, as as a neutral. If you're an Everton fan, less enjoyable for sure. And their fixture list now playing Brighton and City in the next two, uh, not good. So I, I, I do worry about Everton. Another game I saw, the, the game I saw before that was Liverpool versus Tottenham. Yes, and 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 of course here in this game, you had a team with some very talented forwards who are just consistently let down by by poor uh, defending. And Tottenham were also there, huh? See what I did? See? Little joke, little jokey joke. Liverpool and Tottenham, uh, you can make the case that they have similar problems in the sense that they both, you know, they, they both produce stuff going forward. You can't really rely on any of them at the back. I'd say Tottenham are more dysfunctional than uh, than, than Liverpool. Uh, but you know there there are some comparisons to be drawn, and not, not that uh, not that Jurgen Klopp would enjoy hearing them, but I think there are. Tottenham, I mean, they did their thing of just not playing football from the start of the game uh, again. I mean, that was such a success at Newcastle, so I guess you had to try it again. Um, good good job by Spurs, well done to them. Uh, but with Liverpool three 0 up, they did uh, Liverpool just did kind of step off. I mean. Maybe that's normal. Maybe you get complacent. You know, they didn't. They didn't want to be accused of toying with their food. I don't know. Uh, but Spurs were allowed to get back into the game, and they created a lot of chances. Tottenham eventually got it back to three three. Had two off the woodwork, uh, and then of course uh, Lucas Moura putting on a fine assist for Diogo Jota for Liverpool's winner just at the end. Which I suppose, I suppose it is fitting that Lucas Moura, with his sort of various right wing political views. Uh, has had a terrible time 
on Merseyside this year, first getting himself sent off versus Everton and now handing two points to Liverpool. I mean, given the political history of the great city of Liverpool, seems fitting to have a, have a right winger, just have an absolute stinker up there. And listen, I've said it before, in an attacking sense, this Liverpool is kind of fine. They've created the third highest uh, XG number in the league uh, overall, just behind City and Arsenal. Uh, but across the season, they're 10th for XG conceded. So they are an elite top four team in an attacking sense, but they are a mid-table team defensively. And that is, it's really is what we've been seeing recently because they've won four straight games now, but they've not kept any clean sheets. Like you can still get at them. And, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about Trent Alexander-Arnold then because he has, there's been a shift in his position. We had the OG pod listeners will know, my Norwegian friends listening to this will remember, we did have a big, big Trent Alexander-Arnold chat a couple of months back uh, in the autumn. I'm going to do a very, very short version of that, which is Trent Alexander-Arnold is kind of a, a unique player. He's very unusual. As we know, he's a great creative player, incredible passer of the ball, can put great crosses in, good vision, but he has some defensive shortcomings, which is kind of unusual for a right-back. I mean, it tends to be the other way around. I mean, maybe you want it to be the other way around, but, but Alexander-Arnold's skill set is, is pretty unique. Now, in the past, Liverpool had a system that covered for him quite adequately. They had a system in which you know the, their fullbacks would bomb forward and go very, very, very high up the pitch, and, and but they would be covered effectively by a midfield. I mean, back when Liverpool were were working as Liverpool should do under Jurgen Klopp, and they were racking up you know ninety points plus seasons, we did tend to look at their midfield and go, oh, it's a bit boring. You know, they could have more creativity in midfield, and because it would be like uh, Henderson and Milner or Vinaldum, something like that. Um, and that sort of slightly grey, not super interesting midfield. And I guess, I, I think I was part of this. I think I fell into this trap. We, we were kind of missing the point, which is by having a midfield three of guys who are all, I've got very you know good running power, cover a lot of ground, I've got good legs, and are all kind of quite tactically clever players. You can unleash the fullbacks to be these sort of crazy attacking uh, wingbacks, really, that they were knowing that when you lose possession and your fullback is trapped way the hell up the field, you've got midfielders who are savvy enough to cover for them to either either stop the counter, which of course is what Liverpool want to do with the high press, or drop into positions to cover and help out. So so that sort of slightly boring midfield was was a feature, not a bug, I think. It, it, it was to enable the fullbacks to do the sort of crazy attacking things that both Liverpool fullbacks have been doing. You know, fantasy players out there know what I'm talking about. You know, Trent and Robbo, huge assets in FPL in, in recent seasons. And that kind of worked, which is why I always thought that let's move Trent Alexander-Arnold into midfield just was a bit stupid because the system was working. You had a system was that was particularly tailored to his strengths you know he could get forward and if he was caught upfield people would cover for him he had you know good hard-working players around him to help him out defensively it was working Liverpool were winning games they were winning trophies the system was working and I'm just I don't get people who look at something that works and, and go quick we must change it immediately I was like what like it's it's working it's fine uh, but of course uh, the astute observer of, of Premier League football may have noticed the system is currently not working, or certainly this season it hasn't worked as well. And Trent Alexander-Arnold has been exposed. Uh, his defensive shortcomings have been exposed uh, repeatedly. Uh, it's, it's become a big problem for, for him, for Liverpool. And this, I think, then, 
is a time where it makes more sense to, to, to fidget with the system. I mean, there are reasons things are different. One of which being that Mohammed Salah is now uh, 30 years old. Like he's not the, his uh, output off the ball, his defensive work off the ball is not going to be the same as it was three or four years ago. And and, and I kind of think you, you maybe don't want him to, to, to use all his energy off the ball because he's still, he's past 30, but he's still a huge difference maker in an attacking sense. So you, I, I think it's fine to sort of uh, save your strength a little bit, uh, to, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but it does mean the team has to compensate for that. The other thing that's different is, of course, you don't have, I mean, on the right side of that midfield, that will have been sort of Jordan Henderson territory, wouldn't it? You would have had like peak Jordan Henderson patrolling uh, that part of the field a couple of years back you're not getting the same kind of defensive work, the same tactical nous out of young Harvey Elliott. Uh, and, and it would be unreasonable to expect that. I like Harvey Elliott. He looks really good, but he does give you something that is very different to what Henderson gave you a few years ago. Like that, that's pretty obvious. So the guys in front of Trent Alexander Arnold who are there to sort of help him out are not as capable defensively as they used to be. And, and Liverpool's press overall is not as efficient as it used to be. They're not winning the ball high up the field as often and as consistently as they used to. It means they have more attacks that come uh, against them that they have to defend against. You know, the best thing, if you can just stop the opponent from attacking you entirely by 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 winning the ball back high up the field, if you can't do that, they will, they will run at you. So it's a combination of the press not working and the players around him being not as defensively uh, savvy or effective as the ones that were there a couple of years ago means Trent Alexander-Arnold is in a much more vulnerable position now than he was, and and we've seen that a number of times this season. So with that being the case, now I think it makes sense to to fidget with his role and see if there's something you can do do differently. Because you have this sort of great... Like the, the right-back Pirlo, the, the right-back De Bruyne, the right-back uh, David Beckham, whatever. I mean, these cross-field balls, his vision, he, he's great. Like You want to use that. Those are strengths that you want to have in your team. But you've got to find a way of covering for, for the shortcomings he does have. And, um, and one thing they've been doing recently, Liverpool, of course, is... Uh, almost like John Stonesing him. I mean, doing the thing uh, as a version of what Man City have been doing, which is taking uh, a player out of the back line, and when you're in possession, he moves into midfield uh, as almost as a kind of a double pivot in, in midfield. And in that position, you get him on the ball much more. You get him in central positions where you can kind of use his vision and his accuracy with the right foot to kind of spot uh, passes, diagonal balls, things. You, you've been getting a lot of great stuff uh, from him in possession in that role. So in that sense, it really works. It does have a knock-on effect, which is, I mean, when City do it, they revert to just a pure back three. Uh, which is kind of easy for them because you've got Nathan Ake who can both play as a left back, a pretty conventional left back, and as a centre half. With Liverpool, you're kind of asking Andy Robertson to be a centre half in this system when you have the ball. So he's not going to get forward at all, and he's going to play in an area that he's probably not super familiar with. Is, is that a good thing going forward? I don't, I don't know. I wonder. Uh, and it's, it's also the case with this version of him when he moves in and becomes almost like a deep lying midfielder in possession. When Liverpool do lose the ball, he's not way the hell up on the right flank. So it's he's got not quite as far to go to get back into a, a right-back position. So I think that will probably help him defensively a little bit. Because 
it's not just that he has certain shortcomings. It's that in his previous role, he would be very, very advanced. You know, he'd overlap Mo Salah or whatever and sometimes move all the way into the box. And then when you then lose the ball and people counter on you, he's got an awful long way to get back, uh, to get back into defense. If his position now is that he moves into midfield and is sort of pinging the ball around from a deep area there, you're not that far away from where you should be. Uh, so, so you can easily drop back down into defense and defend when you lose the ball. That can probably help him. But I still think you will have the issue of him having to defend as a right back when you don't have the ball. Like this system, uh, this sort of half Man City system that they're doing still means you drop into a back four with uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold as your right back when you're defending. And his sort of shortcomings one-on-one defensively are still going to be an issue there. So I'm not sure you fully solve. The problem. I, I I wonder if it'll it'll be intriguing to see going forward, but I I still think you have that issue there. So the question is, are there other answers to to the Trent Alexander Arnold conundrum? Because because no matter how like uh, poor he's been in some games defensively, how much he's struggled in some. You do want him in your team. You want to use the good quality. You can't just say, ah, oh, the, the, the Napoli winger went past you a few times. I'm going to put you in a bag and throw you in a river. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you do want to try to uh, use his strengths in a good way. This thing they're doing now could be an answer. I'm not totally convinced it's the answer, but it, it's an answer. Other options is, I mean, there will be a sort of reconstruction of the Liverpool midfield this summer. I think we're all expecting that. Maybe try to find a player who can do the kind of job that that, that Henderson, the younger Henderson, was doing on the right side of that midfield. As someone who can cover a lot of ground, has the tactical nous to cover for uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold when he goes forward. I always kind of thought that would be the the simplest way of going about this. But then again, there's nothing really simple about saying, oh, well, we need a we need a central midfielder who covers a lot of ground and is incredibly tactically intelligent and is also a good ball player, ideally. Like, like there's not a ton of them about. Like, it's, it's a pretty big uh, list. It's a big shopping list for, for one guy um, that, that you're asking for. So I think it's not necessarily, you can't just kind of, as smart as Liverpool are, I'm, I'm not convinced they have a computer somewhere. You can just shake the laptop and out pops the name of a midfielder who ticks all those boxes. I think that that would be a little bit tricky. Maybe they could try three at the back. I mean, maybe that's the thing. Just convert him to a wing back, give him a lot of like freedom to bomb forward or get into good areas and have three center halves. And you already, like, it's easier to imagine a, a Matip, Van Dijk, and Konate and back three working really well, right? You've got a good mix of sort of people who are pretty good on the ball, people who can run. You know, I, I, I like that. And then you still get Andy Robertson doing the Andy Robertson stuff on the left flank. Could be good. Are there drawbacks? Sure. I mean, I'm not sure how that midfield is going to look. And can you still use three attacking players in, in that system? The sort of the dreaded 3-4-3 three, three that I think a, a lot of Premier League fans have been... <laughs> have been tired of seeing bad versions of um maybe you can do that again midfield needs some reconstruction but it would be an interesting thing to see but but the option which a lot of people have called for for a long time of course is just commit to the bit and and, and turn him into a true midfielder just just say okay fine you've, you've done great stuff at right back but you're so good on the ball you're so good at picking passes we want to see you as just a traditional central midfielder I would just say that, I mean, there are some challenges to that. First of all, Trent Alexander-Arnold is used to have the game in front of him and being able to to either 
like spot passes in front of him or run into space that's in front of him. Being a central midfielder, you end up in a much more sort of crowded part of the pitch where you don't always have that space. You have to have, you know, much more sort of quick feet to get yourself out of tight situations. You have to have a sort of very good uh, 360 degree awareness of what's happening. A right back, usually it's enough to to know what's happening right in front of you or to the left of you. I mean, to the right of you, there's a, there's the sideline. There's not much going on. And and behind you, ideally, there should be no one because, uh, well, no enemies, certainly. And if there are, you're going to need someone else needs to help you out. Uh, so, so you're looking in front and, and, and inward in the field. Uh, you have to have a completely different sort of awareness of everything that's going around you as a central midfielder. And I'm not sure that's something you can pick up overnight. You hear things say, ooh, but you know, he played central midfield at youth level, you guys. I was like, yeah, you know, Kyle Walker was a striker at youth level. You know, a lot of things happened at youth level that are not tremendously relevant uh, for, for what's going on in the professional game. But but I would maybe like to see it tried. I mean, depending on who Liverpool sign in the summer, how that squad shapes up going into next season, would be interesting to maybe try it in a few friendlies ahead of the season, maybe see how he adopts to that sort of role. Because what is clear with Trent Alexander-Arnold is that he's a massive asset to Liverpool. Uh, in an attacking sense and in possession and as much as he's had some real stinkers off the ball and in a defensive sense that for me is more like well okay then you have to find a system where you hide those things because i think he brings you so much in possession in possession that you don't you don't want to get rid of him absolutely not you just got to find something that find something that works and uh, and certainly uh, looking forward to the summer and what they're going to do as a neutral I have no skin in the game here I don't really care about uh, whether I mean if Liverpool are really bad it's kind of funny I guess if Liverpool are really good then that's good because they're one of the very few teams that can feasibly challenge Man City uh, so I mean I'm kind of whatever happens with Liverpool I'm, I'm here for it but but, but seeing how they try to rejig their team and their midfield in particular in the summer is going to be super super interesting Um not totally convinced that the sort of hybrid John Stones role is the answer with a capital T for Trent Alexander-Arnold, but it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting version of it. It's an interesting attempt at uh, at figuring out what to do with them. There have been other games, one in particular since last we spoke at the Lars Resort. Uh, the big one being. Man City versus Arsenal, the game to decide the title race, the big showdown. And really, it was, it, it was, we don't need to hash over all of it. You all know how it went. You've all heard smarter people than me talk about it since then. Uh, but, but it wasn't. It was almost a non-contest. Um, and as much as I tried to talk it up before it happened, when I sat down and, and wrote like a betting column for the midweek, you know, and I had to make a call and had to make a prediction for it, I also went with City to win by more than a goal. Because you just look at Arsenal's recent form, and it was just hard to to imagine how they were going to suddenly reverse that and 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 put out the put on the performance on their lives away to this this amazing Manchester City team. Uh, it, it just didn't seem plausible, and in the end, it wasn't very plausible. A couple of interesting things from the game, though. Uh, one being a City getting it launched uh, in in the as, as John Bruin uh, would put it. Uh, this is something that it fall, it comes back to the discussion we've had about Erling Haaland. You can focus on some of the shortcomings he may he may have and how he changes City, but but you can also focus on the the upsides that he brings them and and how he can make them different, maybe in a positive way. He's not a sort of a a, a, a vaguely Latin playmaker with imperfect balance and short legs. You know that that's not him. So he's not going to drop off and and be an extra man in midfield. But you know what? 
you can knock it long to this guy. And, and I think Ali Holland looked at uh, poor old Rob Holding and thought, well, oh, hello. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Huge sort of Drogba versus Philippe Senderos energy in that duel, I thought, unfortunately for Holding. And, uh, and, and Holland just, yeah, had a good time. You can say he was not worried about getting physical with him at all. And, and that gives them an option to, to, to play completely differently. Because again, if you're facing Man City and they're both good enough at playing out from the back to get past you that way, and they have the option of going long, if you ever feel like, if they ever start feeling like your, your pressing is, is starting to stop them, you can actually go along to, to Holland. It, it just makes them more complete and an even more nightmarish team to come up against. Uh, so, so there's that. Man City were really, really incredibly good uh, again in, in this game. They were good in a slightly different way that we've seen in, in, uh, sometimes. I mean, they didn't have that much possession, really. Uh, but it was showing that this is more of a multifaceted Man City than perhaps they've been in previous previous years. And I did think about it earlier this season that, of course, the table... After 38 rounds, the table rarely lies. So if Arsenal won the league, they would have obviously earned it. But we did see a few months back that like City's maximum level is 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 the highest in this division. There's there's very little little doubt about that. And when we're now also seeing Erling Holland looking more at home in the team, adding new dimensions to what they can do, um, it's uh, it's it's quite something. It's it's quite quite something. This game also saw uh, something that we maybe didn't think we would see, which was the return of Kyle Walker. Uh, so, so when uh, Nathan Ake became unavailable, I just kind of assumed uh, just because they're doing the three at the back and John Stones goes into midfield thing that they would try Laporte in that left-sided role, that he would be more suited for that. Because, of course, Pep Guardiola was very clear that he, he thought that uh, that Kyle Walker just couldn't do it. Now, in fairness to Guardiola, I think he was asked about Walker versus Stones. I mean, the prospect of Walker doing the role that Stones has been playing uh, of stepping in in centrally. And he gave this wonderfully direct quote, Guardiola, and I've got it in front of me here where he says, no, he cannot do it. He will always have pace. Kyle, at 60 years old, will be the fastest player in this room, he said to a room full of journalists, which is like, yeah, fair enough. Uh, To play inside, you have to have more educated movements. He doesn't have every one of the characteristics. He has played as a fullback coming inside in the past with four at the back. He has done really well, but this shape of three at the back and two in the middle, he cannot do it. And I think that's fair in the sense that you really don't want Kyle Walker in the John Stones role of him going in and and being one of the central midfielders. That's probably not good. But of course, Kyle Walker has played as the right-sided central defender in a three a number of times, for England in particular. He's done that quite a lot. Uh, so, So that feasibly is something he should be able to do. And, and and so it proved, you know, playing him just basically like a, a right back out of possession. And then when John Stones goes into midfield, he transitions and becomes more of a center half and a back three type of thing. And really, I guess it's one of those things when we talk about the difference between Arsenal and Man City here. Arsenal lose William Saliba. They have to play Rob Holding. City does not have to play someone like Rob Holding, with all due respect. City lose a regular, you know, whatever you think of Nathan Ake, he's been very handy for them in that system. They lose him. And it's Kyle Walker who comes in, who costs fifty million pounds and has seventy-five caps for England and four league titles in the bag. He's who, the guy who comes in. It's not Rob Holding who comes in. Big, big difference, I think. Uh, so now we we had the whole chat about Arsenal and Man City. We had that last week. I had a feeling the game was going to go the way it did, and uh, well, it's going to be five out of six for Man City, isn't it? 
pretty extraordinary. I mean, turns out if you're effectively funded by a country, you have really smart people in charge of the club upstairs and you have the sort of foremost tactical mind of his generation as the manager. That's a pretty good mix. It's a pretty potent mix, everybody. And anyone who wants to challenge that has got to be pretty much perfect. And Arsenal managed to be pretty much perfect for about half a season, but that's just not quite enough. I should have picked up on this earlier, but listen, there's a website, uh, www.understat.com. Now, they're not very transparent about where their data comes from, so maybe take it with a slight pinch of salt, but they do have this great functionality where you can select certain segments of the season, like by date, and look at the numbers, which is mega useful. If, like me, you write a lot of uh, betting preview articles, it's super great. Now, if we set the cutoff here at the 1st of January and we look at Arsenal's XG against in that time, what are Arsenal's XG against since the 1st of January? How are the def- defense been performing? It's not good. So this is from before Saliba got injured as well. Since the 1st of January, sort of 16, 17 game stretch, depending on which team you're looking at, Arsenal are 15th in the league for XG against. They're, they're lower lower half of the table for XG against. The City, needless to say, have the lowest XG against and have produced the highest XG. They have been amazing since the turn of the year. But in the last third of the season, Arsenal's defense has actually been well below Premier League average. They produced the second highest XG behind City going forward. The attack's been fine, but actually their defense has not been good for a good while now. Now, I looked at these numbers uh, before this weekend, might have changed since then, uh, but after the City game, I looked at this, and, 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 and at that point, teams that had conceded a lower XG number since January the 1st, a lower number than Arsenal, included Chelsea, so, so teams that have defended better than Arsenal. That list includes Chelsea, West Ham, Crystal Palace, Leicester City, Wolves, Tottenham, and Southampton. Like, this is not good. Like, I'm sorry, Arsenal, but this is just not going to work. If uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna come at the best, you know you, you can't be defending like this. And I looked at Arsenal's xG against in the first part of the season, the games between the start of the season and the World Cup. They actually had the lowest xG defense in the league. So Arsenal have gone. I mean, again, I should caveat this by saying I don't actually know where Understat get their numbers from. Maybe their xG model isn't the best uh, out there, but it certainly suggests that Arsenal have gone from having one of the best, if not the best defense in the league before the World Cup to being well below average uh, from New Year's Eve and onwards. Now, I'm sure when the dust settles on this season, Mikel Arteta, first and foremost, is going to be really proud of his team. He really, he should be. They've had a great season overall. But him and his staff obviously have to sit down and look very, very closely at what went wrong uh, around sort of January and onwards. Uh, maybe teams just started working out how to play against Arsenal. Maybe they found weaknesses to, to exploit that, you know, I, I can't spot because I don't have a great sort of tactical mind. But my point is that this isn't just a recent meltdown. Arsenal have been iffy at the back for a while, and sooner or later, that is going to catch up with you. Now, what else did I watch this week, last week? I've, I've been keeping abreast of things, even though I've been in Norway, you know. I went fishing. I caught a fish. I've gotten some fresh air. You know, it's been good for my good for my balance and all that. But I have watched most of the football all the same. I've I've been enjoying the the the, the Roy Roy Nassons. Can we say the Roy the Roy Nassons? The Roy Hodgson thing at, at, at Crystal Palace. It's been fun. Uh, Eze and Olise doing the business for them as we were hoping they would all season. I've been talking about these guys. It is kind of weird that it's seventy five year old Roy Hodgson 
who unlocks the creative potential in these two technically gifted young men uh, and not recent Arsenal legend Patrick Vieira, but but the, the, there we are. Uh, what else caught the eye this weekend? Wolves being pecked to death by seagulls. Very bad. Like Not so much a game of football as 90 minutes of prolonged animal cruelty at the Amex. Very, very bad. But we've said it before. It bears repeating. Brighton, absolutely amazing. You know what's not amazing? Leeds. Uh, 4-1 lost to Bournemouth. Leaves them looking in a very, uh, looking like they're in a very, very rough spot. Reports today that Javi Gracia is getting fired uh, already. So there, I mean, he wasn't really the caretaker, but they're sacking the guy who came in for the guy. Uh, sporting director Victor Orta uh, is under threat. And I'm always one of those, like you should, sporting directors are meant to be there for a while. You shouldn't sack them the moment things go wrong. But in terms of like managing the transition, from being a Marcello Bielsa team to no longer being a Marcello Bielsa team. That's not necessarily easy, but I think it's also clear that it could have been done better. You bring in Jesse Marsh, which does have a certain logic to it, because he's like a high-press guy, a very, very different type of high-pressing football, you know, more direct, less controller possession. Uh, crucially, zonal marking rather than mark, uh, man-marking off the ball, like the mad, crazy Bielsa man-marking thing, you, you do away with that. But he is a guy who needs like aggressive fit runners in the team, and you had that from the Bielsa time. Now, they lose Calvin Phillips, their leader in midfield. They lose Rafinha, their best creative player. So the setup before the season for Leeds is they finish 17th, one spot away from going down, and then you lose your best two players who've been good enough that they went to Man City and Barcelona, right? Some big shoes to fill, not a great spot to be in. And I guess... I guess the thing that doesn't quite sit right with me with this season is that if you look at the recruitment last summer and in January, they must have been driven to a large extent by Jesse Marsh, right? Or at least by trying to give Marsh the players he needed to play the sort of fizzy drink Red Bull football. So so some American players, some players who've been part of the fizzy drink empire who are used to the kind of high-pressing thing, that's all fine. But then when you lose patience with Marsh and you sack him, and you bring in Javi Gracia, who's very different, more sort of back to basics, let's sit off, be solid off the ball, this sort of thing. Now, this is me being wise after the fact, because I got to admit, I thought there was some logic, you know, they they keep conceding loads of goals, they're a mess defensively, so bring in a guy who can tighten them up, that, that seems logical to me, but the result is that we're seeing this team that was built to play on the front foot, who are trying to sit back and be more solid, and they're just not doing it very well. And I think if you're the owner, and you look at Leeds, and you think, well, this is a mess. And I think it's also fair that you think that my sporting director has not played this very well. Uh, so what do you do now? Do you do you write it out or and hope for the best? Uh, with a few games left, hoping Javi Gracia will, will get you across the line? I mean, you could do that. But multiple reports today that Leeds are going to bring in Big Sam. <laughs> Sam Allardyce. Sam Allardyce. I mean, really. Um, <laughs> there's too, I mean, there, there's too much. I mean, there, we're going to have to have an. We're way into this episode. We're over any kind of logical running time already. Um, so we got to do an emergency big Sam chat if this actually happens. It's just too much. But going for Marcello Bielsa to Big Sam in about a year, that's pretty special. Like, I'm not necessarily saying it's totally bad. It might be good, but my God, it's very strange. And taking a squad that's been molded. I mean, the players Leeds have, they've either been molded by Bielsa or brought in to play Red Bull football under Jesse Marsh, right? And then handing them to Big Sam. Like, like whatever that'll be, it'll be really strange. And, and I'm not going to lie, I hope it happens. I, it's been a weird season already. Some crazy things have happened. Why not this? You know, Big Sam 
uh, taking over this sort of front foot high pressing team and trying to big stamp them. Very, very interesting indeed. I would like to see it. I, I think we've reached the betting part at the end now. And I, I am, I'm on Arsenal tonight. I think they'll beat Frank Lampard's Chelsea. I wonder uh, if now that actually they've lost that game against Man City, maybe in a weird way, the pressure is off him a little bit. You know, the tension of trying to keep pace with City, that's kind of gone because they, they must assume that City will win the rest of their games. But, you know, City did have to work for it against Fulham. That seemed like it was in the balance for a while. You know, they have a ton of games coming up. Arsenal will want to keep the pressure on them at least a little bit. And, and, and Chelsea are just a mess at the moment. And as much as I like to be mean about Frank Lampard, I can't. It's not all his fault. It's a difficult thing to walk into. He hasn't made a big impact. But, you know, I, I think a lot of managers, a lot of good managers would have failed to fix this Chelsea team. So but I, I will say, though, right, okay, Playing in Golo Kante and Conor Gallagher in advanced positions against Real Madrid to try to stop Kroos and Modric from running the game, to try to get a good high press going. Yeah, that makes sense. Playing them in that position at home to Brentford, who don't really want to run the game, but kind of want to play it direct to Tony and stuff like that, makes a lot less sense, Frank. Gotta tell you, made sense against Real Madrid, did not make sense to Brentford. Brentford, Real Madrid, very different teams. Well, I... Lampard must have realized this because he did change it at halftime already. But still, very strange stuff. Now, Chelsea are enough of a mess that you can't really blame Frank Lampard too much. But they also have gotten worse since he took over. That, that's pretty clear. So the decision to not just ride it out and stay with Potter until the summer uh, seems to be getting weirder by the day. Anyway, um, the odds are that this game will have been played by the time you listen to this. So let's see if we can find... Uh, an interesting betting angle on a different game here. You know what? And listen, you know what? This isn't the most original direction to go in, but Man City are playing West Ham United. Uh, Man City, very, very good team. West Ham United, not terrible, but, you know, not that good. So the the crazy thing about Man City, especially at home, is not just that they're winning a bunch of games and scoring a bunch of goals, of course, that that's what they're doing, but they're also winning almost all of them by a margin. Right? So if you look at Man City's home form this season, they've won 14 out of 16 games at home. 13 of those 14 home wins were by more than one goal. So this is the minus one handicap on Man City at home is, is almost like it's almost been a given so far. So if we just jump into the bet builder at Betson, you can put together a bet here with Man City to win by two goals or more and Alling Holland to score any time in the game. We don't need to go over his scoring record. He is, he is the, the ice troll. He is, <laughs> he is the combine harvester of doom. Um, I, I think that ends... You get odds of 186. I think that's fine. I, I think 186 for Man City to win by more than a goal against West Ham, given the way they've been bowling teams over recently, especially at home, and Ali Holland to score any time uh, within 90 minutes. Not very imaginative, but I, I really think that's a perfectly fine bet. Uh, for for this game which is played uh, it's tomorrow night it's wednesday it's the third of may yeah uh that's where i'm going uh for for the betting segment here i i think that is it's another erling holland show and and, and we know as much as west ham are uh 
not quite i maintain i don't think west ham are actually as bad as the table suggests but we do know about west ham under david moyes they've been largely atrocious away to and and, and against top uh, top six teams in general they don't do well against the the very very strong opponents there are a couple of exceptions but not too many uh moyes's record against these bigger teams is not good at all so i suspect uh, this will be another mauling uh by by man city uh, so Man City to win by more than a goal, Erling Haaland to score at any time at 186. I think that's perfectly fine uh, for uh, for this game. That's something I'm going to test out. Anyway, thanks for sticking with me. Long-ass episode yet again. Uh, but uh, what a zany season. How many weird and wonderful things have happened. Um, I, I am enjoying the Premier League. I do worry... I do worry that it's morphing into the Bundesliga a little bit. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. I tweeted this yesterday. If you look at what the Premier League is right now, right? You've got an unstoppable force at the top. You've got a youthful challenger that pushed them, but but is falling just short. And then pretty much everyone are a mess in some kind of way, are a dysfunctional, uh, chaotic mess in sort of various curious and amusing ways. And then you have a couple of really smartly run smaller clubs that look some of the power that make the bigger clubs look a bit foolish because they're doing better than they should do like that is the bundesliga that's what the bundesliga has been for a while now we're, are we the bundesliga as, as the meme goes that, that that that's where we're at now with the premier league but it is fun to watch there's enough crazy things happening that that i'm enjoying it not going to complain i'm sure we'll have more fun and crazy games this week starting with arsenal seeking revenge against frank lampard's chelsea tonight looking forward to that uh, we'll talk again soon. I mean, if the if the Sam Allardyce thing happens, we're gonna have to have an emergency Sam Allardyce pod. All right, let's 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 agree on that. Uh, anyway, thanks for the company, everyone. See ya.